And this relationship between this man and this woman, uh, we've seen uh, the passionate desire uh, that they have for one another. Uh, so in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, really down to chapter 2 and verse 7, we saw that theme uh, of desire that they, they have and how that's a good thing, uh, but how that desire points us to Jesus and the desire that we uh, have for him and that he has for us as his people. Then last time we looked at chapter 2, verse 8, down to chapter 3, verse 5, where this man invites uh, this woman on an adventure in the mountains, but she regrets, uh, rejects that invitation, uh, but comes to regret it in her dream as she goes and searches for the one her heart loves. And when she finds him, in chapter 3 and verse uh, 4, it says that I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. And we uh, said how that was looking to a wedding. When you bring someone in, in this time to your mother's house, we're thinking of a wedding. And so we come to chapter 3 and verse 6 tonight, and we come to a big day. This is a wedding day. We've just had a royal wedding, and tonight in the Song of Solomon, we're going to read of another one. Uh, and each week, uh, me and uh, my wife Paula have been uh, reading these passages to help us understand who's reading and who's uh, being spoken to. And so as we read chapter 3, uh, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, uh, Paula's going to help me do that. But as in the first week that we did this, uh, there is a part where the friends uh, of the couple speak. Uh, and that's at the very end of chapter 5 and verse 1. And so the words of that are on the screen. Uh, so at that appropriate point, I'm just going to trust that you are going to speak as we did the first time. It seemed to work well then. Uh, and uh, you join in uh, the chorus together uh, as the friends affirm what is going on with uh, the, the man and the woman. So at that point, you come in. Chapter 1, verse 1, uh, really down to chapter 2 and verse 7, we saw that theme uh, of desire that they, they have, and how that's a good thing, uh, but how that desire points us to Jesus and the desire that we uh, have for him and that he has for us as his people. Then last time we looked at chapter 2, verse 8, down to chapter 3, verse 5, where this man invites uh, this woman on an adventure in the mountains, but she regrets, uh, rejects that invitation uh, but comes to regret it in her dream as she goes and searches for the one her heart loves. And when she finds him, in chapter 3 and verse uh, 4, it says that I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. And we uh, said how that was looking to a wedding. When you bring someone in, in this time to your mother's house, we're thinking of a wedding. And so we come to chapter 3 and verse 6 tonight, and we come to a big day. This is a wedding day. We've just had a royal wedding, and tonight in the Song of Solomon, we're going to read of another one. Uh, and each week, uh, me and uh, my wife Paula have been uh, reading these passages to help us understand who's reading and who's uh, being spoken to. And so as we read chapter 3, uh, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, uh, Paul is going to help me do that. But as in the first week that we did this, uh, there is a part where the friends uh, of the couple speak. Uh, and that's at the very end of chapter 5 and verse 1. And so the words of that are on the screen. Uh, so at that appropriate point... I'm just going to trust that you are going to speak, as we did the first time. It seemed to work well then. Uh, and uh, you join in uh, the chorus together uh, as the friends affirm what is going on with uh, the, the man and the woman. So at that point, you come in, and then that's the end of the passage. Okay. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel. All of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. 
King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of the wood from Lebanon. It, it posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like the twins of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart. With one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, there was a tweet here from Dan Walker. Uh, he is a Christian who works as a presenter uh, for BBC Breakfast and uh, does lots for BBC Sport, uh, Football Focus and things like that. Uh, and he questioned uh, in his tweet about what it says about our society that so many more people are applying for Love Island than for Oxford or Cambridge University. The tweet caused a great deal of controversy this last, in this last week. In fact, it was uh, talked about on Question Time on the television. It was talked about and debated on the radio. Uh, things went a little bit crazy uh, because of this tweet. Now, for those of you that don't know, uh, Love Island is a reality TV program where 13, uh, the, this is Love Island's term, not mine, sexy singletons are put on an island and they have to couple up. Any islander that remains single is dumped off the island. Now, judging by the fact there's 13, uh, there must be at least one at the beginning that is just thrown off. Uh, people can change partners on the island, and that's known as recoupling. 
And then the public vote which couples they like best. And the couples who don't get enough votes are eliminated from the island. The winning couple get £50,000. Uh, on this program, there is lots of sexual activity, lots of flesh on show, and all the people that are on it must work really hard to have perfect bodies, and they're all really young. Dan Walker was saying, what does it say about our society that so many want to be on a show like this and parade their bodies to the world? I'd like to think that was his, point, was his point more than any debates about Oxford and Cambridge. Even if that wasn't his point, it is a good point, isn't it? What does it say about our society when so many want to be on that kind of a show? Perhaps worse than this, though, is in the last couple of years, it has been a show uh, called Naked Attraction, which is a kind of blind date format except there is no blindness. A clothed person chooses two people from six naked people whose bodies and then whose faces are slowly revealed until they are completely naked in order to select the one they want to take on a date. Within this kind of love, because that's what they're calling it, Love Island and Naked Attraction, there is fear and shame, and rejection. It's all about keeping up an appearance, staying young, and being good enough. It is carnal, and it is debased. The Song of Songs may be, in fact I would say is, a little embarrassing for some. I know that what we read here can make us uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable sometimes talking about this kind of stuff in public. But we need to hear this song. Because the world is singing about sex all the time. And our young people are listening to this rubbish. From programs such as Love Island and Naked Attraction. That's what they're hearing. And so we need to hear what God has to say. And when we read this song the song of songs, we see how God's design is more wonderful, more beautiful than anything that this world has to offer. And I'm prepared to go through some embarrassing imagery, if necessary, so we can hear what God has to say. So I make no apologies that at times as we've been looking at this song, a few of us perhaps have been squirming in our seats with embarrassment. We need to hear what God has to say. It's really, really important, isn't it? But from the start, as we looked at the, at the introduction to Song of Songs, and especially tonight, I want us to be clear that when the Bible is talking here about sexual intimacy, it is talking about it as something that is good. I think we can see that's clear from this passage. One writer uh, says this of our passage tonight. More than any text in the Bible, these verses reject the suppression of physical pleasures as though in themselves somehow evil or unworthy of God. That's not to say we should never abstain from sexual intimacy, but rather the reason for abstention is never because sex itself is evil. As with all of God's gifts, we can enjoy it within the boundaries that God has set. But the way that we enjoy it as God's people is so very different from this song that the world is giving. And tonight we see that there is a way to enjoy this gift from God, and it takes us back really to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they were and where we can be naked without shame. That's what we're seeing here in this passage uh, in uh, Song of Songs. Nakedness without shame. And we see here an enjoyment of sexual intimacy as a gift from God, which we see points us to a greater reality 
that we will have and do have in Jesus Christ. Because in the end, whether we are married or not, before God, all of us want to be naked without shame. Where all of our sins are wiped away and there is no fear. Where we can stand before God and stand before each other with no shame at all. So how does the passage here show us nakedness without shame? Well, first of all, we see that nakedness without shame comes through a wedding. In the previous section, the woman was uh, proposed to by the man to leave her home and join him on this adventure. She rejected him but regretted it. But when she found him again, she takes him to her mother's room and would not let him go, which was a sign of marriage. And here we see the wedding. And chapter 3 and verse 6 begins with a question. Look at the question that is asked. It says this, Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? There is someone coming, and this is no ordinary person, no ordinary group. Smoke rising in the wilderness is very unusual. It's a sign of someone special arriving. Myrrh and incense are anointing oils for kings. Spices from the merchant are rich spices that come from all over the world. When you think of Solomon and think of the Queen of Sheba, from a distant country, she bought Solomon lots of spices. Those are the kinds of things that are talked of here. The who that is talked of here in in verse 6 can also be translated as what. And in verse 7, we see the what is Solomon's carriage. What is this? But the this is actually a feminine word, and so it's talking of who is in the carriage. So either what or who doesn't matter. The focus is the carriage, but who is in that carriage? This is a carriage on a way to a wedding. And we see from verse 11 where the friends are asked to look at King Solomon wearing the crown given to him on his wedding day that it is indeed a wedding. And what we see here in these verses, chapter 3 verse 6 down to verse 11, is a poetic description of Solomon's wedding that is used to picture the wedding between this man and this woman. Other clues to it being their wedding is seen in the fact that in the section after this, she is for the first time described as his bride. And it doesn't matter really uh, too much here who is speaking. What we see here in verses 6 to 11 is the ancient equivalent of our wedding videos. And in any culture, a wedding is a really big event. We saw this recently, didn't we, with the royal wedding. It was all over the television. It was a big deal. In fact, it was such a a big deal that the the bride uh, had to be uh, baptised into the Church of England in order to be able to marry the groom. So uh, it shows the importance of this particular wedding, doesn't it? But for many of us, we may think that weddings are just all over the top. Too much Uh, Too much money, too much fuss. It would be much easier if we just went to Gretna Green and and eloped and all that kind of thing. But even if we feel like that, we mustn't play down the fact that a wedding is a very important occasion. At a wedding, two people are joined together under God. They make a public and lifelong commitment. And this here is a very public occasion. Because we are all invited in verses 7 and 11 to look. We're asked to look. And at a wedding, that is why, why we come, isn't it? We don't come to have a nap. We come to a wedding to look and to see what is going on. We want to witness the joining together of this bride and this groom. That's what's going on here. Look, see what's going on. The use of Solomon's name shows how the couple feel about this special day. Solomon is known for his richness and his opulence, which we see in the description of this wedding train. For them, for this couple, their love for each other is most valuable. 
illustrated by the most valuable wedding that they know of, which is Solomon's wedding. And so they use Solomon's wedding to describe their own wedding, to show the value of it. In this wedding picture, we see how the man loves this woman, and how at the wedding he shows the kind of husband he's going to be. So we have, who is it coming up? It's the woman in that carriage, in Solomon's carriage. And so Solomon has made this for her. And he shows here the kind of husband he'll be. And men, we need to take note of what is going on here. This isn't just what goes on on the wedding day. This shows what kind of husband we ought to be. What kind of men we ought to be. And the first thing we see in this wedding is his protection of this bride in verses 7 and 8. She is coming up with 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel. This is the uh, elite core of Israel's army. Notice how they are experienced in battle and they are ready to fight, swords by their side. Now King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, has 30 mighty men, they're described. They were his elite core of his army, the best of the best. But here, that number 30 is doubled. This man's provided 60 of the mightiest of men to protect her. He takes responsibility so that when the nighttime terrors come, she doesn't need to fear. He will protect her from that which will harm her. In the New Testament, we read that men are to love their wives and to lead in their homes. And part of that leadership is to protect Now, protection isn't about muscles and swords, but about addressing vulnerabilities, for example, as we saw in the first part of the poem. It's about showing what is right. And in a Christian home, it is leading our families to Jesus. But above all, it is taking responsibility. He protects her. Secondly, we see his devotion. In verses 9 and 10. Notice the effort that Solomon makes for his wedding day. In both verses we read that he, that is the the man, Solomon, he made. In weddings today, uh, most husbands probably leave everything to the wife. It's their big day, I'm not going to do anything, I'll leave it all to them, they can do it all. And sometimes there's an element of good submission there not having things all your own way. But too often, this lack of involvement, this passivity, carries on into the marriage, doesn't it? If a man makes, wants to make no effort on his wedding day, I think that's a warning flag, isn't it? That they wanted to make no effort, perhaps, in the marriage. We need to make an effort. But Solomon, he lovingly made his carriage with the best wood from Lebanon. And he made it beautifully with gold and silver. And the interior where she was going to be with him was made with love. He is giving the best that he has for her. As we say in our wedding vows, all that I have I share with you, all that I am I give to you. That's what's going on here. He is devoted to her. And we need to make an effort in our relationships, don't we? We need to take the initiative to give the best that we have to our spouses, loving them, dying to the selfishness that ruins so many relationships. It's hard to apply this specifically because people are loved perhaps in different ways. But if you are married, ask your spouse, how can I love you? Have a conversation about it. Well, in verses, uh, verse 11, the focus changes from looking at the bride on the wedding video. She's kind of come down the aisle, if you like. And we're now looking at Solomon. And the final aspect we see in this wedding video is his status. We've seen his protection, his devotion, and now we see his status. That is, who he is. The friends are, are asked to come out and look at King Solomon wearing the crown. She is marrying the king, one who is without rival, 
one who is her leader and provider, one to whom she gives her allegiance to. Again, when we are married, your spouse should have no rivals from anybody else. In fact, I remember um, uh, when I got married, there were some friendships that I had with uh, women that were not inappropriate before I was married, but they could never be the same after I was married. And the same uh, for my wife. There were friendships with, with men that couldn't be the same now that we are married. Not that they were inappropriate, nothing bad was going on, but there could be no rivals. I am a a one-woman man. That's what's going on here. There's an allegiance to her king. That's how she sees him. And then the final thing in this video we see is his rejoicing. His rejoicing. Notice at the end of verse 11 how he rejoices over her. He is thrilled to have this woman. And you can just see it on this wedding video. And we need to continue to rejoice over our spouses. Do you see your spouse as the, the very best gift that God could, to, could give you as, a, as, a, as, a, to, uh, as he gives you a person? The best person he could give you? The one that you rejoice over? The best earthly gift that you could receive? It's easy, isn't it, to complain and to moan about our spouses but they truly are a gift from God to us, and we should rejoice over them. Well, Christian marriage is always a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel because it points so wonderfully to the relationship between Christ and his people. And here we also see wonderfully what God has done for us in Christ. We, as sinful people, have been in a wilderness of sin. But God brings us out of that wilderness and unites us with him. Jesus has come and he has died in our place on the cross so we can be forgiven of our sins. And he came back to life so that we could be with God forever. In this marriage, we see a shepherd girl Elevated to marrying a king. That's the kind of picture that's going on. All that she has in this passage, everything she has, this carriage and, 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 and all that is going on here, is given to her by virtue of the love that this man has for her. And the benefits of that relationship that we have with God are all by virtue of the love that God has for us. And the blessings are wonderful. This man gives her his protection. And once we are with Christ, we are protected. We are secure forever. We don't have to worry if we are good enough or whether God will provide for us. We can take risks for him, knowing that we can never lose that which is most precious to us, himself. Because we are in covenant together with him. This man was devoted, giving the best that he had for her. How has God done that for us? This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He is so devoted to us, he gave the very best that he had for us. He gave his life for us on the cross. He gave the best he had and he is eternally devoted to us. He eternally loves us and eternally cares for us. Even when he disciplines us, it's for our good. Even when things go wrong in our lives, he's working them out for our good. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He will complete the work that he started in us. God is devoted to his people. This man was a king with no rival. And so too is Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords to whom every knee will bow. And for Christians, he is our king especially, isn't he? And for him, we put away all other idols. We put away all rivals because he alone wears the crown. And finally, and this this is just uh, so wonderful, as this man rejoices over his wife, so too Jesus rejoices over you. Now there's a, a... 
a, a right place in the Christian life for what is known as worm theology. That is, uh, I am before God, I am such a sinner, I am a worm. I am nothing before God. And there is a place for that because it's true, isn't it, that, that we are as sinners before God nothing. But once we're Christians, we aren't nothing to God. He rejoices over us. He, he delights in us. He loves us deeply, not just because he has to, but because he loves us with his emotions as well as his actions. We might not feel very lovely, but God rejoices over us because of what Christ has done. He's forgiven us of our sins. We're cleansed from all that we have done wrong. So when he looks at us, he loves us and he delights in us. He rejoices over you. It's lovely, isn't it? It's just a wonderful uh, picture we have there as at, a, a, at a wedding of the love that Jesus has for us. And to know these truths is really liberating, isn't it? We can stand before God naked without shame because Jesus has paid our eternal debt. We can never be anything but delightful to God because Jesus is only ever delightful for, to God. Do you see? Because all of his merits are our merits. Because he was perfect, God looks upon us as perfect because he's paid for our sins. So now that we are united to Jesus, and in this illustration, married to him, let's really go for it as in our Christian lives. Let's, let's not hold back. Let's go for it because we are secure. God isn't going to divorce us or kick us out. He's delighted that we are his bride, and so we can have confidence to live for his glory in the security of knowing that he is united with us forever. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And you know what? There will be no death us do part because we'll be with him forever. Well, before we come to these intimate words in chapter 4, it's worth pausing and noting what comes is in the context of the marriage that has taken place. That's important. Nakedness without shame sexually comes through God following God's plans for the use of this gift. Sexual intimacy is given for marriage. Having seen the way that marriage pictures Christ in the church, we see that there's a big reason for this. The reason that God wants us to uh, have the boundary of marriage is because that marriage is a shadow of a greater reality. That is how God designed it, and we don't cheapen it or toy with it. We are picturing to the world the relationship that God has with his people. And so we need to do this right. So remember, this is in the context of a marriage that has taken place. But as we move on, we also see the beauty of God's design, beginning with how this man describes the woman that he has married. And as we look again at this description in chapter 4, we see that nakedness without shame comes through delighting and being delighted in. We saw the beginning, I saw the beginning of this at the end of verse 11, where the king rejoices on his wedding day. But this is fleshed out all the more in these verses now. Now as with, um, before we look at these verses again, as with previous compliments in this book, we need to dig a little bit because they do sound a little odd to our ears, don't they? The description though begins and ends with something that we should understand quite clearly. He describes her as beautiful. And he begins with her face going all the way around it, her eyes, hair, teeth, lips, mouth and temples, and then he moves on down her body. But this description in verses 1 to 7 uh, are um, bracketed, if you like, with she's beautiful. That's his big point. In verses 1 and 7, she is beautiful, and that beauty is described with the verses in between there. So her eyes, her eyes are like doves. They are lively, they are fluttering, but they are behind a veil. Now, a veil speaks of inaccessibility or a barrier. And we have veils, uh, the bride at least does, on their wedding day, don't they? 
And on the wedding day, uh, the veil represents, in one sense, a mystery and an aura, but also of a barrier that needs to be broken through. And in fact, marriage is always an unveiling. First of all, on the wedding day, but progressively too, as we give ourselves to our spouses completely. Not just bodily, but also emotionally, relationally, materially, all of those things we over time are giving to our spouses, naked without shame in every area. We promise on our wedding day to do this, don't we? But nobody gets it perfect straight away. As we get married, as we're in our marriages, we find out those things about one another that perhaps we wanted to hide. But over time, those things are unveiled. And that's sometimes difficult, but a good thing at the same time. So she's got this veil, but behind that veil are these lovely eyes that he wants to see. Then he describes her hair. It's like a flock of goats. Uh, Now, perhaps that's speaking of its dark, wavy nature as goats in the distance descending down the uh, mountain of Gilead. Her teeth are glistening white. They're like shorn sheep. Uh, that means that they are white. So they're like the, like the sheep that have been washed. And she has all of them. Which I suppose at a time without dental care uh, is probably quite an achievement, I would say. Uh, and it was an attractive thing. And we understand that even today, I suppose, don't we? Her lips are red and her mouth is lovely. Uh, probably the mouth, though, is referring more uh, than just what it looks like to also how she sounds or how she talks. And her temples uh, are like pomegranates. I would say it probably speaks more of her complexion rather than looking like a pomegranate. But it is a compliment. After going round her face, he begins to move down. The neck is like the Tower of David. Now that may, may seem strange. Is it long and fat? Well, no one seems to know, really, um, what the Tower of David is uh, geographically. But a tower is something that is strong. And the shields that decorate it probably refer to her jewellery, which has been referred to before in chapter 1 and verse 10. And then he moves on to her breasts, which he describes as fawns. Uh, The fawns are a young deer. It speaks of grace. And, fertility of, uh, and the fertility of youth. And the fawns browsing among the lilies probably refer to the way that her body nourishes them so that they grow from her. So that's his description of her beauty. That's what it was going on here. And what we see though, even if we're not fully understanding what all these descriptions mean, we, we would use different words, I'm sure. In fact, I hope to describe our spouses What is going on here is a a delight in her body. Just a delight to see his bride literally in the flesh. But there is more here going on than just physical attraction. The images he gives also show what she means to him. For example, the mouth talking of her speech, what she says. And the Tower of David also can talk of repelling invaders... Or being upright. What we see here is both delight in what she looks like, but also devotion to who she is. And then in verse 6, we see the intensity and the desire increasing. He says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Now remember, we we looked at this uh, last time in chapter 2 and verse uh, 17. It can either mean uh, all day... Or it can mean all night. But it doesn't matter which, really. All day or all night or both. He says, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. And the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense, uh, most commentators agree, are referring to her breasts. He sees her breasts and he wants to spend all day and all night there. But that's not the whole of his focus. Because in verse 7, he finishes his description by saying again about her beauty. She is altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. That's how he sees her. He looks upon her and she is just altogether beautiful. 
There is no flaw in her. Very, very much like Adam in in the Garden of Eden, when uh, the woman is made for him, he says uh, the first ever love song, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's just amazed and uh, in wonder at this woman that God has given him. And that's what's going on here. He is delighting in the woman that God has given him. And it's a, a beautiful description. And it's right and proper that we should feel this way about our spouses. And the more that we love and treat each other right, the more that that physical beauty will manifest itself. If you remember in chapter 1, she desires to kiss him in verse 2. She wants him physically, but at the same time, in chapter 1 verse 3, she's describing and extolling his character. There's a, a link there between the two. But I want to speak just now into a question that has been asked about this passage a number of times to me over the last weeks that we've been studying Song of Songs. The question is this, as the man is speaking to the woman, can I read this as Jesus speaking to me? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely yes. It may take some work. For some of us to see ourselves in this way. But as marriage is a picture of the relationship of God and his people. And if it is shown as a a wonderful and beautiful thing for the man to delight in in this woman. So it follows that Christ delights in us. And he does. But this isn't just some illusion that Jesus has. He's not got beer goggles on as he looks at us. He really does Look at us as beautiful because he has made us beautiful. Because he has died for our sins and we are completely cleansed and he has clothed us in his righteousness, he can literally and truly say to us, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You are not beautiful because you have made yourself beautiful. You are not flawless because you are Mr. or Mrs. Right. You are beautiful and flawless because of the work of Jesus. And because of him, these words are true. And because of that, our response to hearing these words is not to think, well, what a guy I am. No, of course not. Or what a girl I am. But it's to say to God, how amazing and gracious you are that you have made me this way. And then we live in the light of that truth of how God sees us, and we throw ourselves into walking with him in intimacy. Do you see? Yes, we can read this and see the love, the love divine that God has for us. And walking with him in intimacy is where the poem takes us next, in verse 8. He has sung this song to her about her beauty... And in the light of that, he gives her an invitation to intimacy. This invitation is very similar to the one that was received in chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 2, verse 10, it was a call, a way to be with him. But look at verse 8. In uh, chapter 2, verse 10, she was calling him away from her home. But in verse 8, he says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest on Amarna, from the top of Sinea, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. He calls her away from somewhere that is distant and dangerous. The distance is seen in Lebanon and the mountains, which are to the north of Israel, and the danger is seen in the lions and the leopards. So he's calling her to closeness from the distance and to safety from the danger. And here in verse 8, for the first time in this song, she is called his bride. He's not calling her to marriage now, but he is calling her to sexual intimacy. And in doing so, he reassures her that with him, she is coming away from the distance and the danger. It is safe to be with him. This sexual intimacy is in the context of marriage, and within the marriage there is security, and there is a closeness and a safety 
which is not found anywhere else. That's what marriage should be. That's what marriage is. And in verse 8, he gives an invitation, but from verse 9 onwards, this invitation becomes increasingly intense as he describes his desire for intimacy with his bride. Now, the imagery he uses here is the imagery of a garden, and there is a definite uh, Garden of Eden theme in this part of the song. As well as the garden imagery, there is also a phrase that is repeated three times. He calls her, my sister, my bride, in verses 9, 10, and 12. She is not literally his sister, but the brother-sister relationship in the Bible was one of familial closeness, one of intimate friendship. The bride speaks more of her position or status. She is his wife. So in calling her my sister, my bride, he is saying that they have a friendship, but also a status as a married couple, where they belong to one another. He's not just married to someone that he doesn't like, or that he has to. He is married to his best friend. That's kind of what's going on here. And this is important, because the way that they talk about each other here is both of these things together. There is a joyful friendship, but also a husband-wife giving to one another. And this is the final point from this passage, really. Nakedness without shame comes through joyfully giving ourselves to our beloved. In verse 9, he declares how she has stolen his heart. That means that he is captivated by her. He is absolutely crazy about her. That's what the, the word means there. And this is more intimate than paying her compliments now. He is declaring how he feels. This isn't what you look like. This is how I'm feeling. He shares his heart with her. This is intimate. This is passionate. And from there we see an increasing intensity in verses 10 to 15. A sense of anticipation. The main image is of a garden, but there's also uh, images here of the, the tabernacle and the promised land. Uh, giving a sense of something wonderful that's to come. And so in verse 10, the love being talked of here, when he he says uh, there, how delightful is your love, that love is a sexual love. Just like the desire in chapter 1, verse 2. Your love is more delightful than wine. He speaks of kissing her in verse 11. And we know this because he doesn't describe what her lips look like, but what they taste like. Honeycomb, milk, and honey under the tongue. Milk and honey is a common description, though, also of the promised land, isn't it? The the promised land that God was giving to Israel. So here we have the anticipation of more intimacy that comes from the kissing of the lips. And then we come to the garden, which is described in verse 12 as a garden locked up. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed a sealed fountain. In Bible times, gardens, especially springs and fountains, were used as erotic images. Uh, a place you can put in your, if you were taking notes, we haven't got time to read it, it's a, a Proverbs chapter 5. It's, uh, if you read that chapter, you'll see the same kind of imagery there. But she is described as, a, as, as locked up, enclosed, and sealed, meaning that she's not available to somebody who hasn't got a key. She's not available to any man. She has never been available to any man. She has saved herself for this man, who is now her husband. In our day, uh, virginity is something that is scoffed at, isn't it? But here, it is something that is beautiful and something that is precious to both of them. Again, God's reason in calling us to wait is not that he is anti-sex. I hope that we can see that clearly in this book. But with marriage, it pictures our relationship with Jesus. And we are called as God's people to mirror the faithful character of God's love. Uh, Glenn Harrison uh, writes this, which is really uh, very helpful in describing what's going on in what I've just said. He says, The essence of faithfulness 
is that it holds steady in the face of alternatives. Faithfulness is nurtured, tested, and in the end strengthened by temptations. The wife and husband who remain faithful to each other not only bear testimony to the kind of love God has for us, but they put it on display. But what about single people? It's important to grasp that single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Both paint pictures of God's faithfulness, but in different ways. Denying yourself something can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. But what about those who have failed in this area? Well, we need to confess our sin to God and we need to repent, to turn and to live lives in purity from now on. And the wonderful good news is that God forgives all of our sins and we can, with his help, move on in purity and show God's faithful love in how we act from now on. Well, this woman has waited for her husband, and now they are going to enjoy the fruits of that. In verses 13 and 15, he takes a walk in the garden, it seems, as he describes all of its fruit. This is a a, a fantasy garden. No garden has all that is described here. But we see the luxury and fruitfulness here in abundance. Even if it's not a a literal garden that would be... uh, you know, in the real world, it's how he feels about what he is seeing with her. But verses, verse 16 to chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, are the centre of the poem, which is the consummation of the marriage. There are 111 verses in the Hebrew before and after these two verses. This is the, the central point of the poem. And in verse 16, she invites him to come into her garden. The north wind is from Lebanon which is where she has come from in verse 8. And the south wind uh, is used elsewhere in the Bible to uh, describe a wind that affects change. So she's calling on the wind to blow on the garden that has been locked up to help release what it holds for him. Lebanon being where she comes from speaks of what she's prepared and the south wind speaking of change that's about to take place. But the key point to note is a transition from my garden to his garden. Do you see that? Once those winds have blown, it becomes his. She invites him to take what she sees as now belonging to him. And at this point, the curtain closes appropriately and rightly, and the beginning of the next chapter is in the past tense describing what has happened. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drank my wine and my milk. Again, there is great joy. All that was anticipated in those previous verses has been realized. But again, notice the ownership here. Eight times, eight times, the pronoun my is used. He has enjoyed what is now his. And the New Testament reaffirms this teaching of giving to one another bodily. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4 says this, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. It's a giving to one another, not one way, but both ways. And we see sexual love here as something beautiful, something joyful, and as a gift from God. This enjoyment is something that we can and we should all enjoy within our marriages. And the enjoyment comes most, as with any love, when it is self-giving and other person-centered. But what about those who are not married? Or what about those who are married but have frustrations in this area. Well, this is where we can turn our eyes to our greater husband, Jesus. 
As I've said before, of course, we do not have a, a sexual relationship with Jesus. But nakedness without shame before him comes when we give ourselves fully to Jesus, body, mind, and soul. He has given everything for us. And true joy only comes when we give ourselves fully to him with nothing held back. Our sexual desires, which God has given us, whether we're married or not, do show a longing for intimacy that one day will be fulfilled when we are face to face with Jesus. In the introduction, I said that there is no marriage in heaven. No, uh, we're not going to be married to one another. But there is a wedding, isn't there? When we will be fully united with Jesus in glory. Right now, we are in the anticipation stage where we are delighted and loved by God, but we await the glorious day when Jesus returns and all of our desires will be fully satisfied forever. Even if you miss out on sexual intimacy here, you won't regret that when the substance is fully realized, that you have had to forego this wonderful gift in the here and now. In fact, there will be a thankfulness and a joy for having obeyed the Lord in this. But when we have those desires that we cannot fulfill within our marriages, yes, those sexual desires, do not just instantly see them as something evil, but rather as something which reminds you and points you to the one who will fulfill all our desires, our husband, Jesus. They remind, should remind us of what we will ultimately have in him. Well, at the end of chapter 5, verse 1, the friends affirm the union of this man and woman. They say, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Now, this is um, uh, poetry, remember. There's not, this isn't a literal narrative. You've not got a group of friends watching what's going on. But there is a joy in others that this union is taking place. And one day, all of God's people will be singing together to one another in worship of Jesus, encouraging one another to experience more of him. And the Lord's table, where we are going to come in a moment, is one way that we anticipate and experience the love of God. In fact, one author writes this. Each time we come to the Lord's table, the Lord summons us as his people to eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Chapter 1, verse 1, uh, really down to chapter 2 and verse 7, we saw that theme uh, of desire that they, they have and how that's a good thing, uh, but how that desire points us to Jesus and the desire that we uh, have for him and that he has for us as his people. Then last time we looked at chapter 2 verse 8 down to chapter 3 verse 5 where this man invites uh, this woman on an adventure in the mountains but she regrets, uh, rejects that invitation uh, but comes to regret it in her dream as she goes and searches for the one her heart loves and when she finds him in chapter 3 and verse uh, 4, it says that I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. And we uh, said how that was looking to a wedding. When you bring someone in, in this time to your mother's house, we're thinking of a wedding. And so we come to chapter 3 and verse 6 tonight and we come to a big day. This is a wedding day. We've just had a royal wedding, and tonight in the Song of Solomon, we're going to read of another one. Uh, and each week, uh, me and uh, my wife Paula have been uh, reading these passages to help us understand who's reading and who's uh, being spoken to. And so as we read chapter 3, uh, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, uh, Paula's going to help me do that. But as in the first week that we did this, 
there is a part where the friends uh, of the couple speak, uh, and that's at the very end of chapter 5 and verse 1. And so the words of that are on the screen. Uh, So at that appropriate point, I'm just going to trust that you are going to speak as we did the first time. It seemed to work well then. Uh, And uh, you join in uh, the chorus together uh, as the friends affirm what is going on with uh, the, the man and the woman. So at that point, you come in.